Hello and welcome to Resources Radio, a weekly podcast from Resources for the Future. I'm your host, Daniel Ramey. This week, we talk with RFF Senior Fellow Dr. Margaret Walls. Along with RFF co-authors Patrick Lee and Matthew Ashenfarb, Margaret has just published a study on the economic effects of national monuments. The study looks at how the designation of a monument affects businesses and employment in the surrounding area. While some have argued that monuments stifle economic activity by making land off-limits to activities like oil and gas drilling, others argue that they generate growth in other industries such as tourism. In this new study, Margaret and colleagues provide answers. Stay with us. All right, Margaret Walls, our colleague here at RFF. Uh, Welcome back to Resources Radio. This is your second time on the show. It's uh, great of you to join us again. Thank you. It's great to be here. So, Margaret, I'm not going to ask our standard first question of you, which is what we usually ask people, which is how they got interested in environmental topics, because we did that (laughs) uh, when when Kristen interviewed you a few months back. Mm -hmm. Uh, But instead, uh, I just want to you know, let people know that we're going to be talking about national monuments today. So I want to first ask you if you have any favorite national monuments that you visited, or maybe that you'd recommend to people. Oh, yes, definitely, Daniel. Um, as part of this study, I tried to visit a lot of them that we included in the study. I guess I have to say my favorite one is Grand Staircase Escalante in Utah. It's a really special place. And, you know, one of the ones getting a lot of attention right now, but it's worth it because it's a really beautiful place. So I would recommend everybody try to go there. Great. And that's one of the most most visited national monuments, right? I think so. Uh-huh. And been on the increase in recent years. Yeah. Interesting. Um, I've never been there. I, I would love to go. So maybe next time I'm out west. So um, we're going to talk today about a new paper that's just recently come out uh, from yourself, as well as uh, RFF colleagues Patrick Lee and Matthew Ashenfarb. Uh, the paper has come out in the journal Science Advances, and it's on the economic impacts of national monument designation. Can you start us off by describing how and by whom national monuments are designated and how those designations might potentially affect local economies for better or for worse? Yeah, sure thing. So I I think not a lot of folks know exactly what a national monument is, so it is worth going through that a little bit. Um, National monuments are protected sites that are generally protected by the president, Um, under the authority that's granted to him or her in the 1906 Antiquities Act. So this act, which was passed during um, Teddy Roosevelt's era, actually, allows the president to just proclaim a site which might have historic landmarks, historic or prehistoric structures, or objects that are of scientific interest um, that exist on federal lands, he has can proclaim those sites as national monuments and they are protected. And what protection means is that if there was any kind of mining or oil and gas drilling or anything like that prior to designation, that's allowed to continue, but new leasing and new mining is off limits. Um, So that's the way in which some local communities are concerned or some members of those communities can become concerned that there might be economic opportunities that are taken away from them. Um, It's particularly an issue in the West on some of the larger national monuments. So we have a lot of national monuments in the U.S. that are small sites, historic homes, things like that. But the 
ones that get the most attention are ones like Grand Staircase Escalante and some of the larger sites in the West um, managed either by the Park Service or the Bureau of Land Management, sometimes the Forest Service. And those sites that can be tens of thousands, even hundreds of thousands of acres, um, even over a million acres in some cases. So in that case, you are putting a pretty large amount of land um, sort of off limits to certain activities, not all extractive activities, but some. And so that sometimes generates some concern. Um, the flip side of that is there's a lot of folks that feel like, well, actually protecting these sites can be a boom to local economies because you've sort of told the world these are special places and, and every people come to visit. There's a recreation economy that develops. And so this is kind of an open question as to whether or not um, there are positive or negative impacts from these designations. Right. And am I right in thinking that that, I mean, that's essentially the question that's motivated this research, right? That's the question that's motivated this research. Prior to this study, there had been a little bit of a look at this um, with people sort of looking at county-level statistics and trends over time. Um, there's one analysis out there I'll mention at the end that's sort of consistent with ours but still uses sort of aggregate data. Um, and it isn't really, those studies aren't able to address the question as fully as you'd like to do. And as economists generally like to do, we like to, to be able to tease out cause and effect. And so that's what we said about doing in this study. Great. And we're going to talk in just a minute or two about how you go about doing that. Um, but one more background question first, which is probably top of mind for at least some of our listeners. Um, people might be aware that near the beginning of the Trump administration, the Department of Interior conducted a review of existing national monuments, uh, and the president ultimately uh, issued a proclamation reducing the size of two Western monuments. Uh, can you give us a little bit of detail about those two reductions and what the rationale behind them uh, may have been? So what happened was in April 2017, President Trump um, issued an executive order for the Secretary of the Interior to conduct a review. And that review was to be focused on all the monuments that were more than 100,000 acres in size and that had been designated since 1996. So the Interior uh, Secretary of Interior carried out this review um, fairly quickly, within about three months, I think, it was done and made some recommendations. And in that review, the, the review covered 22 national monuments and five marine monuments. There are actually monuments in the ocean that have been created, just a few of them. So in the end, the review recommended some modifications to, I think, about 10 of these monuments, um, including some changes in the boundaries to shrink the size. So in uh, several months later, in December of 2017, um, President Trump released... Um, two proclamations shrinking the size of two of the monuments, Grand Staircase Escalante that I mentioned earlier, and Bears Ears. Uh, both of those monuments are in southern Utah. He shrunk Grand Staircase Escalante by about 50%. It was 1.7 million acres. It's now about 840,000 acres, I believe. And Bears Ears, which was created by Obama in 2015, was shrunk by 85%, down to only about 200,000 acres. Um, so uh, that's happened in late December, just about two weeks ago or less. The resource management plans for those monuments were released by the Bureau of Land Management. 
um, and some of those sites will be opened up for some leasing and drilling. It's unclear whether that's an economic use of those lands. Um, nonetheless, those management plans just came out. Um, and I will say one last thing about uh, the status of that. There is some legal question about whether or not the president does have the authority to shrink monuments. Um, that's so there's a, a court case that's been dragging on for a little while over that. But um, nonetheless, that's where we stand right now. The official boundaries have been changed on those two monuments. Great. Thanks for that update. And yeah, it's interesting to think that the president can giveth, but the president can't necessarily taketh away, or I guess that's what yes. we're trying to figure out in court. Uh-huh. That's right. So now onto the analysis that you carry out. Um, you mentioned that you're able to sort of look more deeply at this question than some previous research has. And uh, I, my understanding is that that's because you've got this really great data set and you use it to try to measure the economic effects of uh, a monument becoming designated. So can you tell us a little bit about the data set as well as the kind of major outcomes that you're looking at? The economic data comes from the something called the National Establishment Time Series Database. Um, and that is a, a unique source of data that is the universe of all business establishments, not just business establishments, but any employer actually, could be government, nonprofits. And the data includes the location of each of those sites, the number of jobs at each one of them, and also what industry code, very detailed industry code that they're in. We have the data for the eight Mountain West states. This is a national data set, but we look only at those eight states in the Mountain West. Um, they're annual data, and they cover from 1990 to 2015, so that gives us 26 years of data. And we're able to look at about 14 monument designations in that region during that period. Then the question is, what are we going to look at? There's a lot of different measures of economic activity. If you're trying to figure out what are the impacts of some change like this, a monument designation, what is it you really want to look at? So I would group our analysis into three types of things. One is we look at the number of jobs in individual establishments that existed prior to the designation. So this is sort of an average number of jobs per establishment. If you have a business near a monument, do the number of jobs go up or down? The second thing is we look at the total number of jobs and the total number of establishments in areas around the monuments, as well as average wage income in areas around the monuments. So there we're trying to see, is there an effect you know, just on the size of the overall economy. And then finally, we look at growth rates. So obviously, you know, the U.S. is a growing economy. Over time, the normal thing to happen is that jobs and establishments go up. So we look at the rate of that growth, and we try to tease out whether or not the monument designations increased, decreased, or left that growth rate unaffected. And when we do that, we're able to sort of tease apart changes on what we call the extensive and intensive margin. So over time, every year, we have lots of what are tend to be referred to as births and deaths of establishments. New businesses crop up, new businesses don't last very long, they go away, so jobs come and go. And what we try to tease apart in the data is whether monument designations changed any of those births and deaths. What did it do to the rate of growth of jobs and establishments? So that's the three kind of analyses we do in this study. 
Great. That's super helpful. Um, so yeah, so what'd you find? What are some of your major results? Yeah, well, big picture. Big picture is that we find more positive effects than anything. Um, we don't find negative effects in any of those measures that we look at. We find a few things are unaffected by monument designation. So some zero effects, some positive effects, no negative effects. Um, so the first positive effect, and I guess our kind of central result, is that we find that areas around monuments see a, an average increase. And remember, we're looking at these 14 designations across this region. So we get kind of average effects across all of these designations. And we find that there is about a 10% increase in the number of establishments and about an 8% increase in the number of jobs in the areas directly around the monuments. We didn't find any effect at all on average wage incomes in those areas. And I think this is an important finding because one of the things that you hear a lot from folks is, well, we're taking away the, quote, good jobs and replacing them with bad jobs. And what right. they mean by that is that we're generating low-wage um, service sector jobs that don't pay very well. And we don't find any evidence of that. We basically find no effect on wage income. And it's important for everybody to understand the backdrop here. Um, wages have been stagnant in the U.S. since about 2000. So there's not much wage growth in the U.S. And especially in rural areas, it's even worse. We're just finding that there's no effect from these monument designations either way on that, on that trend. Right. Right. That the areas around newly designated monuments are essentially equivalent to other areas. Right. Great. One other question that's kind of related to the wage question that you just raised, uh, which is how do how do some of these effects vary across different economic sectors? You mentioned earlier on that the data provides pretty detailed uh, industry data about kind of what sectors uh, these business establishments are in. And, you know, I, I can imagine uh, intuitively people thinking that if an area is designated off limits to new oil and gas or mining activities, that the number of jobs in that sector goes down, while the number of jobs in other sectors like like retail or services that you mentioned might go up. Uh, so do you find any evidence of that or other relevant trends? Yeah, we do. We tease this effect on jobs and establishments in areas around monuments out. We do some separate estimation by industry. And what we find is generating that increase is um, a boon in the construction industry and in several service industries, namely business services, um, finance, insurance, and real estate, which is a sector um, that's usually grouped together, um, health services, and hotels and lodging. So all of those saw pretty significant and fairly high increases in both jobs and establishments. Um, we looked at the effect on mining, livestock, grazing, and forestry, and we grouped those together. And the reason we looked at those particular sectors is that those sectors in that region depend heavily on public lands. So in this data, we're able to actually tease out the livestock grazing part of agriculture and lump that with forestry and mining. Um, so when we look at that together, we find no effect, either positive or negative, on jobs in that in those sectors. Interesting. And just one sort of maybe technical question that I should have asked earlier on, which is when monuments are designated, I, I think you mentioned that new oil, gas, and mining activity is is not allowed. Uh, what about um, sort of new grazing activities or existing grazing activities or other types of uh, land use like that? 
Right. That's a good question. Um, it's sort of a mixed bag. Generally, grazing, which is one of the most important uses of our public lands um, in the West, generally grazing is dictated um, in the resource management plans that are developed by, say, the Bureau of Land Management, if they're managing the site, um, that are developed for each of these sites. In some cases, grazing has been reduced a little bit after the designation. In others, it's about the same. Um, and Grand Staircase Escalante still has a lot of grazing. Um, so there are grazing allotments given out by the federal government for use by private ranchers. And those just vary across the sites. But it definitely is not something that's completely cut off. That's really helpful. One more follow-up question to that last one, which is um, you mentioned uh, that construction activity increased substantially uh, in a couple other related sectors. Were you able to to look at sort of over time whether the growth in construction activity was like centered shortly after the designation of the monument and then trailed off? Or was it pr- pretty consistent over whatever time horizon the uh, monuments existed? So if something was designated in the year 2000, does construction sort of peak in 2001 and then fall or does it stay pretty consistent? Well, no, that's a good question. We we aren't really able to do that with the data that we have in order to have some sort of robustness, um, have enough data points, basically. Right. Um, we, we can't really tease out these effects over time. Um, we can kind of look at, at the data graphically, and we didn't really pick up anything like that. But our methods don't really allow us um, a, a enough latitude to do that. Um, and, you know, I just want to say a little bit about these, a little bit more about these sort of null findings, if you will, for yeah. uh, mining, livestock, grazing, and forestry. And I think, or for uh, really about the results as a whole. And that is that, you know, we have to keep in mind that these are our findings for these 14 sites during this period. A lot of these sites are in the southwest. There's several Arizona sites. There's uh, New Mexico sites that are... Um, you know, they're protecting uh, Native American archaeological sites and artifacts. And some of these are maybe not the areas where, for example, mining or or especially oil and gas and coal are, are very economic anyway. Right. So I just want to say that it's not clear that if we're, we're not saying that any monument that you would designate would have exactly the effects that we're estimating. Um, they're for the sites that we have um, that we're looking at. So I think they're Pretty good representation, but of course it really matters where these places are. Yeah, that's such a useful point and just keeping in mind that, you know, every place is different, especially when we're thinking about natural resources. Um, so one last question before we go to our uh, top of the stack uh, ending question, which is uh, just kind of broadly, what are some of the key take home messages that you hope um, those interested in national monuments will take away and how, uh, you know, what are some key messages that policymakers might take away uh, from this work when they're thinking about the establishment of new new monuments? Right. Yeah. Well, thanks for that question. I, I have sort of two points I want to make. I think our analysis and our study um, is fairly definitive and it builds on another really good study out there that I should, uh, you know, give a shout out to. And that's by two Utah State University researchers, Paul Jackas and Sherzad Akunjanov, who look at use more aggregate data and look at per capita income and the effects of monument designations. And I would say their results are pretty consistent with ours. They use similar methods. They just don't have the detailed data we have, and they don't 
uh, look at jobs like we do. They look at income, but they find no effect of monument designations. I think between that study and this one, um, these are pretty good analyses of the causal effects on local economies of these monument designations. My feeling is that... um, we have answered this question <laughs> pretty well and that it's time to focus on some other issues with monument designations um, to maybe take a step back and think about why are we designating these places in the first place. Um, they are to protect resources, cultural resources, historic resources, artifacts, um, things that we think have value. Uh, those things have value not in the marketplace. They just have value because we like to preserve our history and preserve um, these pieces of culture that we have in the United States. And some of these places are, you know, spectacular geologic resources. So um, I think we need to remember why we set up the Antiquities Act and preserve national monuments in the first place. I'm not saying that it's not important to look at jobs and economic activity. Absolutely it is. Um, But I think we also need to think about the broader set of values that these places have. And um, one thing I'll point out is that these sites have to be managed by our federal land management agencies, and they are grossly underfunded and not able to do that probably as well as they should. And maybe it's time to start talking about those issues a little bit more. Um, There is a bill in Congress that would create a National Monument Enhancement Fund um, that would provide some resources to these agencies to manage these sites. But I think it's important to remember why we're doing it in the first place and maybe um, take a step back and think about those things. So, Margaret, I'm actually going to ask you one more question before we go to top of the stack because it just popped into my head, which is, can you talk a little bit about the Antiquities Act itself and sort of how it came about, what some of the motivations were behind the legislators and the president when they were crafting it and enacting it into law? Absolutely, yes. I do know a little bit about that. I'm not a historian, but I've read about it. As I understand it from what I've read, Um, Back in the early 1900s, there was some looting and vandalism at archaeological sites in the Southwest, and people were starting to get really concerned about that. And members of Congress were concerned and um, wanted to pass legislation to protect particular sites, is my understanding, but couldn't get their act together to actually pass anything. (laughs) It sounds somewhat familiar. Yes, things have not changed very much. So Um, But what they did do is they decided the better approach would be to pass a law that would give the president the authority to do it and do it quickly. So when the president would see that there were problems in a particular area, they would be able to put it under protective status. Um, So that's my understanding about um, how the law came about. I've read that there was... um, a lot of discussion about the law in the first place, which was t- there was a there were proposals to limit it only to the Southwest where the sites were being vandalized. Hmm. Um, I've heard that they wanted to put a clause in to limit the size of national monuments, and that ends up being you know one of the contentious things in the act. Now you're supposed to have the site be the smallest size necessary to protect those. Um, cultural resources and so forth. So I I think there was some debate about it and it wasn't a a slam dunk, but my understanding is that's how it came about. Um, There were some things under threat and they decided to just pass this law to give the president the authority. Yeah. 
That's so interesting. And I often think about, you know, the Congress ceding power to the executive as a more modern thing. But here we go. Examples <laughs> from 1906 as exactly. well. Exactly. So um, interesting. So, so now let's move on, um, Margaret, and, and talk about kind of what we're interested in and, and reading and enjoying lately. So this is our top of the stack feature. Um, I'll get us started with um, uh, actually a relevant um, uh, news item that I came across recently, which was a controversy that's been going on for quite some time around proposals for uranium mining around Grand Canyon National Park. And I think the Grand Canyon started off as a national monument. Uh, is that right, Margaret? It did. Many of our national parks started off as, as national monuments. Teddy Roosevelt created Grand Canyon National Monument, yes. Huh. And and then in subsequent years, it's turned into a park, and um, there's been a lot of, or at least some interest in in doing some uranium mining, not in the park itself, uh, I believe, but in some areas around the park. It's a very controversial issue. Um, you know, some local... Uh, elected officials are in favor. Some local tribal groups are not in favor. Environmental groups are mostly not in favor. Um, and so I was just kind of reading about that lately and, and learning a little bit about the debate. Uh, and then it prompted me to ask the question, how much uranium do we produce in the U.S.? And it actually gave me a really interesting answer, which is in the most in the last few years, we actually source the large majority of our uranium from other countries. Uh, only 10% of U.S. uranium that was bought in 2018 came from the U.S. Um, hmm. About 25% came from Canada, 20% from Kazakhstan, 18% from Australia, 13% from Russia, and 6% from Uzbekistan, and 5% from Namibia. So um, that's, that's kind of my yeah. factoid of the day that I yeah. thought was pretty interesting. Very interesting. Yeah. How about you, Margaret? What's on the top of your stack? Oh, uh, well, I can tell you about books I'm reading. They're not related to... Um national monuments, but they're important in the Western setting. So I'm actually reading two books at the same time on water. And one of them I'm rereading. So I read this many years ago, and many people have read it, but it's worth a reread. And that's Cadillac Desert. Mm. You may have read that, Daniel. I haven't. I haven't. I need to. It's fantastic. So it's Cadillac Desert by Mark Reisner. Um, the subtitle is The American West and It's Disappearing Water. So if you want to understand the Byzantine <laughs> structure of water rights and everything else in the in the Western U.S. It's a it's a great read, really interesting, and that's also prompted me to read a new book I found. Uh, this was published in 2018 called The Source, and that subtitle is How Rivers Made America and America Remade Its Rivers, and that's by Martin Doyle, who you might know from Duke University. He's a professor at Duke. Yeah. Yes, and uh, it's a great read. A lot of history of how we sort of managed our rivers in the U.S., uh, including the Great Mississippi, and um, a lot of uh, a lot of really interesting things about water quality, and um, some really great anecdotes with some um, about some key figures in the history of rivers. So it's both of these things are really great. Yeah, those both sound fascinating. I'm gonna. I'm definitely going for Cadillac Desert. That'll that'll be my next. Oh yes. my next book. That sounds <laughs> awesome. Great. Well, uh, Margaret Walls, uh, senior fellow at Resources for the Future. Thank you again so much for doing this research and for coming on the show to tell us about it. Thank you, Daniel. You've been listening to Resources Radio. If you have a minute, we'd really appreciate you leaving us a rating or a comment on your podcast platform of choice. Also feel free to send us your suggestions for future episodes. Resources Radio is a podcast from Resources for the Future. RFF is an independent, nonprofit research institution in Washington, D.C. 
Our mission is to improve environmental, energy, and natural resource decisions through impartial economic research and policy engagement. Learn more about us at rff.org. The views expressed on this podcast are solely those of the participants. They do not necessarily represent the views of Resources for the Future, which does not take institutional positions on public policies. Resources Radio is produced by Elizabeth Wasson, with music by me, Daniel Ramey. Join us next week for another episode. 